Uh, Steele, are you in a te- are you in a Uber or something? I'm actually like two blocks away from my house. I'm driving home. What's that Sorry. fidgeting you're doing? What are you fidgeting? <laughs> um, just driving? I'm, I'm trying to. So I have this bottle of water that I left overnight in the car, and I'm trying to decide whether to drink it. It was open, so I started it yesterday. Like, does water? Water doesn't go bad, but it's been in a hot car, so I feel like I can't drink it. So How I'm just like, hot. I would totally drink it. it the, it's it's with, like, totally. Plastic, like, it's just like tea plastic. now. It's just tea. It's total borderline. It was like 80 degrees yesterday. Uh, so you know, no, yeah. Not hot. If it was like 90, I'd be like, gotta throw this out. But 80, I feel. Maybe the maybe it's okay. If you're really thirsty, (laughs) I would drink it. No, I'm close. Lukewarm water is gross. Yeah, I'm close. Well, it's uh, colder. It's colder now. Wait, what kind of bottled water is it? Is this is this Aquafina? Is this like smart water? Like what? What are we we rocking with? Hello. It's um. I got it out of the out of the Packers locker room, the official bottled water of the Green Bay Packers. There's just no brand. It's just premiumwater.com. You can throw it away. Yeah, you can throw it away. If it's like Fiji water, you gotta drink that shit. I know. know, That's so expensive. I know Fiji. Fiji, I wouldn't even be asking you guys. You just hear the sounds of me drinking some expensive water. Uh, what's up, Justin? What's up, Mark? Hi, Justin. What's up? <laughs> who, do you, who do you got on today? We've got uh, the typical cornucopia of party goers. Um, it's uh, Carrie Prim, Michelle Steele, that you are listening to as we discuss the uh, whether or not Michelle should be drinking hot water, hot, hot water, cold, bottled water in her. She's also making a turn right now because you can hear her blinker. <laughs> <laughs> What's good? Uh, what, what's good is that we don't have Om. Om Yomusuk is not here. <laughs> That's not good. I'm being mean. I apologize. Uh, but in his place, we have Michelle Steele. Yep, Steel Swag back in the house. Steel Swag. Surprise Steel Swag. Solid Steel. Uh, we also yeah. have a couple more distinguished guests, including Mark Lucero. Recently named Professional Tennis Registry's Coach of the Year. He's a tennis coach and self-proclaimed burrito critic. (laughs) (laughs) Long-time listener, first-time caller. What's up? (laughs) Off the top, Mark, best burrito? Uh, Santana, San Diego, California. Okay, San Diego. I'm I'm, I'm cool with that as as an answer. I can't think of that place off the top of my head, but I... I will definitely vouch for San Diego. Another burrito critic, uh, our ne- our last and most distinguished, not most distinguished, another notable guest. I don't know why I'm trying to drag this out. Justin Ching, filmmaker, producer. Uh, he created Amazon's Ritual. It's on. Um, it's about game day rituals for Thursday night football. He, producer of J School, which is a production company specializing in empowering underrepresented groups to tell their own stories in their own voices. Big advocate for minorities in media. Justin, what up, bro? What's good, everyone? I'm actually coming to you today literally straight out of Compton. So it's good that we're talking about Serena, one of Compton's proudest daughters, obviously. Good timing. Yeah, it is good time. Yeah, so that's what we're here having this uh, little fob pod reunion for. We are going to talk about Serena Williams. Was she out of line or not? That is the big question everyone's debating. Also want to touch on why perhaps Naomi Osaka's performance was super Asian, especially Japanese. And when I say performance, I mean both on 
and off the court. But guys, I want to start off with the viral pics of Marshawn Lynch, the beast mode photo versus his high school photo. Tell me you guys have seen this one. It's uh, it's become the, the, the internet joke is like me on Twitter versus me on LinkedIn. Steele, I know you're all over this. Still, you got to stop pushing the mute button. Yeah, I'm sorry. Oh I really God. do need to. Un- <laughs> I really do need to unmute myself. And yes, uh, what I was going to say was, I could not believe that dude was such a prepster in high school. I mean, I've been covering NFL now for six. This is my sixth or seventh season, and I have yet to see. Um, somehow I've never seen like a young Marshawn Lynch photo where he wasn't in a football uniform. Like I'm familiar with how he used to play in high school and he did interviews actually with television stations where he would talk quite a bit, but that was the Marshawn Lynch we recognized. I don't know where he dig this photo, where they found this photo, but, um, delete all your tweets, kids, but you can't delete your yearbook photo. So that's the moral of this story. It's just, uh, well, it's unbelievable. L- let, me, let me make a throwback reference here. Now, this might be too old for some of our younger listeners, but to me, this is an example of Steve Urkel versus <laughs> Stefan Urkel. I don't remember this <laughs> back in the day during Family Matters, but this is like night and day. This is like Clark Kent and Superman to me. The good oh. news about our generation, though, is none of our yearbook photos are digitized. Mine aren't, <laughs> at least. So that's the good news. Wait, how old is Mark He's in his He's 30s. 32? 32? Yeah, so his, I don't think his were digitized either. I just think that they dug it up. Oh, they went into archives, huh? Yeah, I think they that's went into really archives. Scary. Did you guys have any, like, super embarrassing, like, class photos that you took? I mean, I, of course, don't because every photo I've ever taken is on point. But I'm wondering if you guys have. (laughs) I would have to say that all of my photos from high school are embarrassing. Um, I think this puts me in more of an outlier position TV-wise. I feel like everyone that I work with, like, just did not go through puberty or, like, immediately went from, like, very, very adorable, (laughs) very adorable child to, like, hot adult. And there was, like, no (laughs) transition period. (laughs) I had glass. I had straight up, like, glasses. Um, I had very large teeth for the size of my face. Um, Steel, I actually remember you sharing one of your photos. I I forgot. I think it was, like, from middle school or something. I I remember seeing one of them. I had very bad haircuts all throughout school because my parents did not understand style. Also, we went to like the Land's End outlet store to buy all of our clothing Um, because because my parents are cheap um, and I wore a uniform for Catholic school. So we didn't like have to dress up. I I don't think anyone I don't think anyone on this pod can beat beat like my awkwardness. I don't know. I mean. I was an ugly duckling growing up, to say the least, and I grew up in a country town, so like my sense of style was all off. Oh, like, really? What do you I mean think by were, yeah, what country town? town? Like, what does that mean? So I grew up in in this area called the Inland Empire, which is out by San Bernardino. That Los ain't Angeles. that country. You're doing the OC bit now, right? No, 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 no. This is like on your way to Palm Springs or like the, the Death Valley or Vegas, like dead Wait, zone. Palm like it's a Desert literal considered country. It's not. It's not Palm. De- I mean, I'd say it's like somewhere between the country. It's a really hard place to describe. It's like it's between a country and a desert. But like the main industries in my town are are uh, literal rock quarries shipment centers um truck stops and the nascar racetrack like those are the the primary Justin, businesses in my hometown i feel like i got you beat on mexico missouri it doesn't get more <laughs> yeah, there you mexico, go. missouri man <laughs> yeah. I mean, oh, we that's were true. excited when we got a walmart and that thing shut down like 10 years later because we couldn't sustain it and a taco bell that was a big wow. deal i okay. literally had See cows you. in my yard that's a real story. Yeah, no, you got me beat for sure. <laughs> I will say in my defense, my last line of defense here, one of the go-to like nice restaurants, quote unquote, in my neighborhood was the restaurant attached to the Bass Pro Shops. <laughs> like they literally oh. had a seafood restaurant and that's where we would go for seafood. 
I bet the bathroom at Bass Pro Shops, especially in that area, was Ew. really nice. <laughs> <laughs> I love Bass Pro Shops. Bass Pro Shops is a big store, though. That's a really. It's big very store. cool. It's very even if you're not into like any of that, any of that stuff. If you're not into bass or outdoors, which <laughs> I would, I would check both of those boxes. Um, it's a very enjoyable store. It's they, they have crazy like dioramas and stuff. What? No, they don't have diorama. What are you talking about? This is not an elementary school third grade like production. They don't have dioramas. What are you talking about? Yeah, they do. When you go I'm back in, back they have like, on that. Yeah. What? Yeah, they have like a big. Yeah, you go in and there's like various. I mean, I'm talking about Bass Pro Shops. We're talking about the same thing, right? The big like hunting. Yeah, and outdoor good yeah. store. So like they I have. I thought dioramas are like limited to shoebox size, like specifically that's like the, what a like diorama. that one Simpsons episode. <laughs> no. No, they have got these like outdoor. It's really impressive. What's the right word then? Like outdoor oh. scenes that they have. You're, you know, you, you can like correct. try out your fishing pole and whatnot. No, it's definitely it's you, you're like what you're saying is like it's a large diorama. It's like a recreation of an outdoor scene. Like that's yeah, yeah, right. that's what it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. Jade, who's correct? Uh, who's correct going, in this no, very I'm definitely going with steel. Steel is definitely. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever in doubt, steel is always correct. Yes, <laughs> that's true. Sender, I'm looking yeah, at one right now. And you heard it here once again. So it's been confirmed uh, on Google. Well, this pod went quickly off the rails. I'll I'll, I'll try to get it back. <laughs> uh, so the U.S. Open final, men's or women's, the most controversial final in a long, long time. You, you know the backstory. I'll, I'll rip through it real quickly. Naomi Osaka becomes the first Japanese player to win a Grand Slam title, beating Serena Williams. History, Asian folks, so props to Naomi. Um, but the Serena drama is really what we're gonna we're gonna hit right now. And basically, the Twitter recap. She was warned for getting coached, lost a point for destroying a racket, then lost a game for complaining and calling the ref a thief. That essentially game ended the match. The ump, Carlos Ramos, was he being inadvertently sexist? Was he being inadvertently racist? Serena claimed men get away with much worse. Was she getting penalized unnecessarily? Double standards in tennis. Mark, you were there. Yes. Tell me, what was it like out there, and what what, what is your thoughts? Uh, it was it was insane. I, I had never been at a tennis match where there was that level of uh, that level of passion from the crowd, particularly in a negative way. Um, you know, I've been in the chair that that, that Patrick Margotlu, her coach, um, was sitting in, like having you know having a player playing on that court. Um, my thoughts, uh, obviously, I think Serena has some level of culpability, um, but I think the umpire mismanaged the entire situation and quickly escalated the situation instead of trying to defuse it. Um, it's very rare in that situation for an umpire to give a coaching violation right off the bat. Usually there's what's called a soft warning, which is next time Serena comes to the bench, he's going to say, you know, off the microphone, like Serena, you know, Patrick's coaching you. He needs to quiet down or what's happened to me before, because again, this happens in every single tennis match. There's coaching that goes from the coach's box to the player. Everybody does it. It happens in every single match. Like that's truth because I, you know, again, that's my job. Um, so what will happen in that situation is the umpire will make eye contact with me or the coach or whoever's sitting there and be like, yeah, I see you cool it. Um, and then you're like, okay, you know, I accept it. And then if it goes on or if it's particularly egregious, the umpire will come forward with, you know, a code violation warning coaching. Um, so in my mind, that's where things got off on the wrong foot very quickly. Um, I read somewhere that this umpire, I, I wanted to ask both of you guys from the tennis world. Um, I read somewhere that this umpire has a good reputation. Is is that correct? I mean, I'm not familiar, you know, with the ins and outs of, of umpires and kind of their uh, their track record. But this guy just seemed so egregious. Is it true that he that he's actually known for being fair? I mean, I, mean, I think Mark, you can speak more to this. Yeah. I think when you say good, his resume, because you know he's been around for a really long time, and he's, um, I believe, he's the only active chair umpire to have officiated every men's finals 
at, or, at all four Grand Slams. He also was a chair umpire and um, served as the official in the Olympics. So, I mean, he's got a prestigious resume, but in terms of so in, in that instance, I think he's good and has a remarkable mm. resume, but then there's a flip side of it where it seems as though, Mark, you can speak more to this, but it seems like he's known for being a serious stickler. So he's had run-ins and issues with all the big stars, and that includes now Serena, um, also Rafa, uh, Joker, um, and he's also he's also taken some heat for being a little con- inconsistent as well. And I don't know, Mark, do you think he's a guy is, does he have the reputation for kind of going after the big stars? I, I think, you know, obviously he has a, a background that, you know, he's done a lot of big matches and big tournaments, a lot of finals, um, a lot of matches between the top players. And in that sense, yeah, like you don't get assigned those matches unless you have a certain level of, um, you know, a level of accomplishment in your, you know, in your area. So yeah, he, I mean, he's known as being one of the more senior umpires, you know, that being said, you raise a good point. Um, yeah, he is sort of, you know, he's sort of known for trying to hold his ground, you know, in a match and not let like a top player sort of, you know, walk all over him, uh, which I think is what was happening in this match is he didn't want to create the impression that Serena was going to walk all over him or was going to kind of get away with having a different standard, uh, of behavior than the opponent. Um, and so that was kind of my takeaway from sort of what was happening. That was the problem. No, sorry. Go ahead, Mark. No, no, I said, I went back and watched the video also, you know, so other than obviously being in the stadium and then went back and I watched the match again on television, on the, the broadcast. Um, my sense was that this was an umpire who was trying to assert himself, you know, and, and not be walked all over by a top player. And that's, I think it's happened in the past with other players, you know, on the men's side that he's worked with. And I feel like all of us can kind of agree whether we are all former athletes or coaches or just covering on the peripherals as um, members of the media. But the last thing that we ever want, especially on the big stage, whether it comes to the U.S. Open finals, the NBA finals or Super Bowl, the last thing that we want to see is the ref or chair umpire inserting themselves because their ego is too big and making the story about themselves rather than just like sitting back providing a little bit more leeway and just saying like, you know what, I'm going to let the players play today. We said, how many, how often do we see that in the NBA finals where things get a little bit more physical? The players are getting a little bit more rough with one another. And some, most of the time the refs are going to let the players just play it out a little bit, you know, and they'll, they'll step in when they need to. But in this instance, I just feel like it was, it just went too far. Well, the, Sorry, the, the the racket break was auto, you know that's an automatic code violation. But the issue, the issue sure. there, you know, the issue there obviously was that she was already one step into the point penalty system. You know what I mean? Right. Um, right. She was already one step into the point penalty system. So you know, instead of that being a warning, the next step obviously was a point penalty. Um, what happened on the changeover with her, you know, saying he's a thief or whatever? Like he, I think he should have just let her blow off the steam and moved on. Um, you know, her fault, obviously, for putting him in that situation where he could make that sort of judgment call. Um, but I think, you know, I think he should have exercised some discretion, just taken it and then, you know, moved on and they the match would have kept going. Um, and he wouldn't have, you know, influenced the result in that way. Like, that's kind of what I think. I was, you know, I watched the video. I see all these, um, you know, people saying meltdown, this and that. In my opinion, like, I thought she did a great job trying to hold it together. I mean, yeah, she got emotional at one point, but I thought she pulled it back. Very, she pulled it back really quickly. She was talking to the supervisor, um, Donna Kelso, and then the tournament referee, Brian Early, who came on the court. And she was like, listen, I understand the rules. And like, I understand that you can't take back his call. But she was, you know, and she was making her an argument. But for me, I thought she had a great deal of clarity in the moment, um, which I didn't really get being in the stadium because all I could see was sort of her body language, you know, but when I went back and watched the video, I was particularly impressed, you know, with, you know, with what she kind of said and how she went about it. Um, and we all know that she can go like, yeah, too. we've seen that at the U S open and other grand slams where, you know, she's, she's actually said some like really aggressive things. I mean, how long ago was it? Was it in 2009 when she looked at the, at the, uh, uh, the official on the sidelines, um, the linesman or lineswoman and said, I'm going to shove this ball down your throat. But I mean, she's come a long way since then, and I I agree with you. I think she held held it together for the most part pretty well. There's you know, yeah, as a, sorry. No, I, I was just gonna say, as a viewer, you know, who's not a professional athlete, has a, you know, has been in the tennis world 
enough as an amateur. Um, but also just like as like a sort of conscious viewer at home as I was seeing this happen, it, it just made me feel like, you know, to the point that I was just mentioned about like sort of the judges or an official affecting the outcome of a championship match. Like nobody wants that. And it really made me feel like this was an, 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 an a moment where sort of a third party who sort of overextended themselves to like, to like determine the outcome of the match. Like I think Serena had a moment and I think we can all recognize that, but I think athletes get emotional in these moments and you see people in the ear and rest all the time in other sports and, I know that the decorum of tennis is a little bit different, but I, I was just like thinking to myself, like no one wants to see a win or a loss happen this way. Mm-hmm. So what is going on? Well, I was totally. shocked to see the next day that she was fined, you know, $17,000 or whatever it was for the violations when you have the USTA or the head of the USTA apparently literally said today that there is a double standard when it comes to how male and female tennis players are actually treated. I thought the fine was such a bad look. Um, I mean, you guys again would know if that's mandatory that Serena had to be fine, but I felt like there should have been a little bit of contrition. So, you know, if you're going to say like, you know, the chair umpire was, um, was in the wrong and Serena was in the wrong to some extent, like I think the organizers of the U.S. Open were all also in the wrong. They were in charge of this disaster, and to see the fine after the fact as a casual fan, I think it it was it was a bad look in my mind. Well, so the, the fines go each code. You know, when you get an official code violation during a match, there's a fine that goes with it, and then the fines are on right. A certain, there's a, there's you know there's a certain scale. Um, that the fines can fall within for each sort of, you know, for each sort of offense. There's like a different level of fines for breaking a racket. You know, there's a different level of, you know, uh, fines for giving the coaching and then for the verbal abuse. So, you know, I think if we, I think if we looked at it, I think, you know, I think her fines would end up being on the lower end. Um, really? I think, I think it's more of a procedural thing. You know, Katrina Adams, who's the president of the USTA, who, you know, came out and, and said, you know, what you said, and she was obviously in the, in the, the press conference afterwards, um, you know, I think, uh, yeah, she came out and made a statement, but she's kind of unrelated to the tournament other than she sort of oversees the whole organization, but she has no like sort of administration role in the tournament. Um, David Brewer is the tournament director and then Brian Early is the referee and they're sort of separate. Um, but you know, I, I, for me, one of the bigger points is there, there's so many contradictions in all this, you know, in tennis, they want personalities and they want, you know, people that are not robots and they want to see emotion. And then you see some emotion then there's, you know, there's penalties that go with it or, you know, there's technology to call the lines. There's, you know, Hawkeye and there's been tournaments that have tried this, you know, without umpires. But there's a reason there are still umpires because at some at some level, whether it's the entertainment level or even at the tournament level for fans and for excitement, they want inevitably some sort of conflict between officials and players. You know what I mean? Otherwise, they, otherwise they would just do everything electronic and there'd never be any mistakes on court. Mm. You know what I mean? I think what what the biggest issue with yeah. tennis is is because, you know, I think it's it's this sport that prided itself on such tradition and prestige. And let's be honest, you know, historically it's known as kind of a, a rich man rich man sport or white collared uh, event, um, and it, and it's stuck in between that and the old school ways of doing things and tradition and also trying to be progressive and, and trying to advance in the 21st century and cater to the millennials and new generations, you know? And so I I think that's what they're getting stuck with. It's like, okay, we want all this technology to call some of the lines and, and all this stuff, but we also want the human element as well. We want personality, but at the same time, we want everybody to be all prim and proper. And, you know, that's one thing that, as I think as a player, it's, com- it's completely different because you can just go out there and play the game. But as a member of the media, I've found that personally, I've actually gotten stuck in between as well, because as a member of the media, you are supposed to uphold this, this aura about you. That's a reflection of the sport, right? So you're supposed to dress a certain way. It's almost like going to the masters, you know, you have to, you have to dress a certain way. You have to be very formal and prim and proper. And, and the conversation has to reflect that as well. 
Um, but I, I, I don't know. I just think that's, that's the issue with, uh, tennis right now. Andy Roddick had a tweet. I forgot what he was tweeting about, but it was, it was another issue that, that came up, um, regarding tennis over the past few weeks. And he said it best. He's like, I really wish tennis, I wish, I really wish the sport would get out of its own way sometimes. Yeah. I, I kind of want to go back to the gender inconsistency. Cause I think that's something I'm a casual tennis. I, I'm going to be honest. I don't watch that much tennis straight up, but when Serena's on or, you know, Venus or one of these big stars, that's when I get interested, like Roger or whomever. But to me, I felt like the gender inconsistency that Serena was arguing seemed pretty legitimate. And this is where, as a casual, you know, tennis viewer, when I'm watching John McEnroe back in the day, or, you know, you just brought up Andy Roddick. Andy Roddick used to blow up at the umpires. I remember watching that because they, um, and I feel like those guys would say far worse. And I understand that Serena already had a warning. And Serena, I'm not saying that Serena's not at fault by any means. But the fact that the the comment of you're a thief was the, the straw that broke the camel's back to me did reek of gender inconsistency. And I don't know if it was inadvertent. And I believe it probably was inadvertent. But the, the bottom line was I don't feel like a male superstar would be um, – would be punished, especially on the grandest stage in the final when it's already four, what was it? Four, three to make it to four, five, three. three. Like mm-hmm. that's such a big impact on the, on that match. Like, do you guys, I mean, you guys are far closer. Is there that gender inconsistency that's perhaps not spoken about or are people aware of it? Well, I, I think the funny thing is, is that I think everyone's, everyone's experience is going to, um, shape their perspective on this, you know? So as a female, I, so I, I was, I was tweeting like crazy on Sunday and just looking at some of the responses from uh, hundreds, hundreds of fans, I noticed that the people that responded to my tweets about their, this being an indication of not overt sexism, but yes, it, 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 in my opinion, it is in the backdrop. The majority of the responses that were arguing against that take were mostly men. And the women, the people that were mostly supporting it were female. So, you know, in my opinion, it is. But that's just my personal experience because I, I, I view it that way. I also have experienced it in the workplace where I've noticed um, many times before that if I speak the same way and in the same tone as my male counterpart, that it will be received completely different. I can't curse. I can't show as much emotion because otherwise I might be deemed a bitch or um, emotional or rash. So I have to couch the way I communicate um, completely different than my male counterparts. And, you know, so I I don't know. I, I think there is, but that is just my opinion because I've seen it I'm, I'm comparing it to how the chair umpires and officiating re- react to some of the other male players, but I all, I'm also taking into, into context what occurs in the workplace and my own personal experiences. Yeah, speaking of the workplace, Justin, I mean, you do specifically – you create media for underrepresented groups, like including women. And is there a double – like when you were watching something like this, did you see – a double standard. Did you feel like it was whether or not it's, um, you know, it, uh, it, intentional, but did you see like misogyny there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's coded both along gender and frankly, racial lines. You know, I think not to sort of mansplain this, right. I want to just like be self-aware here and say like, as a man speaking on behalf of this, as a non-black person speaking on behalf of this, you know, I'm, I'm sort of speaking from a position of advocacy, and so I don't want to like pretend to put words in other people's mouths, but I'm watching this and I'm like, and really for me, the media response has been particularly distasteful and egregious. I mean, I'm watching major publications print political cartoons and talk about Serena in this very racialized, genderized way that makes her out to be this like finger snapping, monstrous, angry black woman in it. It really strikes a chord with me because it, it it is a lot of what Serena is trying to point out in that moment. And 
you know, because of the way it went down, I think that people are sort of trying to say, well, like, we can't sort of divorce Serena's personal outburst from what she's sort of identifying with. But I think that we actually have to sit there and interrogate that. I think we have to say, look, like, for Serena to act the way she did in this moment, she did not do anything that to me seemed offensive or demeaning. You know, I think she had an outburst as an impassioned athlete in a moment of, of real, you know, kind of professional crisis in a sense. Um, but that didn't seem in any way that was out of line, but the, the media response to it, the way that people have, you know, have sort of flocked to sort of pour on and, and criticize her. And then how specifically sort of black and feminist media have, have had to defend her. Um, I think it says a lot, a lot about, you know, this particular point in time in media history, this particular point in time in tennis, where you think, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about another tennis governing body sort of dictating what Serena can and cannot wear as a woman, which feels like very mm. distasteful for me. And, and the fact that, you know, we're at a point in time. Oh, I where thought that was racist as all hell. Yeah. And we're, we're, we're rewriting a lot of these rules, you know, like, we're coming off of a year where there's been more forward social progress with the Me Too movement and within the entertainment and media community times up when it comes to women's rights, equality in the workplace, specifically around sexual assault and sexual harassment. And what this is all along the same vein when you think about rewriting the rules of tennis, of tennis media, of mainstream media and the way we talk about these things. And then you layer on top sort of that racial lens of her being a black woman on top of being, you know, a outstanding exemplary woman in general who's not afraid to speak her mind. It, it really felt like we're we're at a moment where we do need to, like, examine these things and people need to really own up uh, and sort of fess up to, like, when they're stepping on the toes of of sort of her her right you know as a as an athlete her right as you know if not for me like to be clear you know for me i see serena in any sport in any gender to be arguably the most dominant athlete in the past 20 years and so for her to be able to speak her mind and like and for her to be able to challenge these things she's earned that right um, and I think that the unfortunate part, which we can kind of get into is like, I think we did lose in both the back and forth of all this. We did lose a little bit of the Naomi of it all, you know, like I felt like there was a little uh, bit, we, we, we definitely did not <laughs> feel like we, we got her, her moment. And that's, and to be very clear, right. That's not Serena's fault. Like I, I, I was sort of going back and forth with, um, you know, a, a old professor of mine, Salamisha Tillett, who is a black professor who writes for the New York times about, you know, in this sort of male storm of the media, we also have just sort of failed Naomi to sort of talk about her. Um, and that's not Serena's fault. That's not the fault of, of what she did. It's very much the fault of the institutions like the U S open and the way they've handled this and the way that mainstream medium has, has reacted to Serena in this really vilifying way. Actually, post-match, I thought Serena was unbelievable in the trophy presentation because the stadium was so loud with the boos. Like, you couldn't mm-hmm. hear anyone on the microphone. Um, and Serena took the microphone, and, you know, this is after putting her arm around Naomi and, and whispering in her ear. She took the microphone and was like, guys, this is a huge moment for Naomi. Let's celebrate it. Let's really make this a memorable thing for her. And then the crowd turned around and started cheering. And I don't think, you know, I think Serena, if she really wanted to make her point, she could have let the boos just continue. Um I thought she exhibited like a great deal of like perspective and, you know, uh, gracefulness in the way that she handled it uh, after the match. And and I don't know. I don't know if the broadcast carried that or not, but it was in the stadium. It did. Very, yeah, they I, did. I, I thought it was pretty impressive from her. Mark, don't you think the the younger Serena probably may not have done that as opposed to the 2018 Serena? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. And, and I think too. I think after the match, Serena would have talked about how she played badly and this and that. But in this match, I thought, you know, I thought she handled it well, you know, obviously on court and then, you know, in the press conference after and, you know, going back to the umpire, like 
have I seen male stars like get a lot more rope in these situations? Absolutely. And I think part of it is because you know, as an umpire, that if you ding one of these top guys, um, the tournament can't afford to lose them, or the tournament can't afford one of these top guys to be in a bad situation. But there might be some sort of element where you know an umpire like Carlos Ramos, who's done a lot of big time men's matches and doesn't do quite as much women's tennis these days, might be in a situation where it's like, geez, well, I'm not going to let you know this woman push me around after you know I have so much authority, you know, working men's matches. That could be you know obviously in something at play as well. And look, I'll, I'll keep it real, right? Like as a, as a third party to this all, I'm thinking like I'm watching tennis and I'm saying, wow, like this is how far behind they are where there's still this like expectation of women to be ladylike, quote unquote, or to act a certain way or to talk a certain way. And for your biggest star, period, you know, men's or women to be someone who is the antithesis of a lot of this and is very subversive to that in a good way, I think it throws people. And I think it probably threw him in that moment. And I think he showed up poorly. I, I wish, because it seems like we're, for the most part, everybody here is in agreement. And there's, what, five of us here. But I wish we had somebody who had the other perspective because I can't tell you how many times, I mean, honestly, I was going back and forth with Will Kane today too. Um, I'm, I'm certainly not going to speak for him, but he was saying that, um, let me see if I can find his tweet, but he was de- definitely putting more of the blame on Serena Williams in terms of how she handled herself and saying that this had to do with like a little celebrity catering. Um, and there's so many people, uh, so much backlash that I was getting on Twitter about like, listen, this is, you know, Serena has developed a reputation. She has uh, a penchant for blowing up against chair umpires and officials. And, you know, we thought that she was completely, uh, going crazy um, and completely unprofessional and inappropriate. But I mean, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. Yeah. I I just wish we had somebody, I wish we had somebody on the other side because I want to hear why they feel that way. And then I would also want to present the, the other side of it. It's like, you know, you have to, I just keep saying, it's like, it's all about relativity and comparison. And it's like, if you take this scenario and just analyze it in a singular sense, just by itself, yes, somebody might see that Serena um, is wrong. But if you compare it to other matches and how they, other women are treated, how, how other tennis players are treated, how other male tennis players have been treated in the past. I mean, Nick Kyrgios gets away with so much stuff. It's unbelievable. This is the same tournament where, you know, Serena is getting reprimanded and gets three code violation in the U.S. Open finals for calling a chair umpire a thief. While a couple matches before, several days before, Nick Kyrgios is getting so-called help from the chair umpire. And he's getting almost like coach, you know? Uh, I will I watched, say this. I watched a number of videos. I, I, yeah, but night. I mean, I don't, I mean, the thing of it is, is like I saw some of those Will Kane tweets as well. And I saw some other guys and they were all guys um, on Twitter saying that Serena was playing a gender card, but you have to compare that. And then Prim, you br- bring up the Nick Kyrgios, um, comparison. And that's a really apt one. You have to compare it to the standard. You have to compare it to, well, how are other players treated? And my understanding is that we would, even when she called him a thief, there wasn't anything necessarily, um, egregious or over the top or, oh yeah, by any standard, um, she would have been punished for that. She would have been disciplined severely, um, at the highest levels of tennis for that. That's just, that doesn't hold water. And also to, I mean, I hate bringing up Will Kane again and again, but that's the only name I can think of. And he's someone who has come out very publicly as the other side in this. But, um, if the head of the USTA who I think knows about tennis is admitting there is a problem, then maybe there is a problem. And I think the way that a lot of casual fans like myself have processed tennis in the last decade plus is through the prism of its biggest stars. Arguably the biggest one is Serena Williams. And she's the one who has let the world know and really revealed whether it's the pay uh, difference between men and women at Wimbledon, whether it's just like, I think Justin was the one who mentioned with the cat suit and the French open just a couple weeks ago saying that they have to hold themselves to some other standard. Well, she was wearing that because it was comfortable and she just had a baby. Sorry. Um, or this situation, which is blown up in part because our culture is going through such a significant shift. Um, 
I, I think that there's a reason why we all agree. And I think that part of that reason is because this is a podcast with a lot of minority voices on it who can relate. Mm. I will say yeah. this, because this is like one provocative thought that I am, and this is not a gender thought so much as it is a thought about the different intersections of of race and ethnicity here, especially since Naomi is a is a mixed race woman. I did think that one of the things that is a a a result of sort of this moment, the media culture they're in right now, the sort of hot take sports culture that we're in right now, is like as we mentioned, Naomi did get lost in all of this. And I think that there's something to be said that she also is not the most stereotypically outspoken person in the way that she showed up in these moments. So not only was the focus brought off of her, but also she wasn't the kind of person who is going to like sort of yell out and get more attention to bring it back onto her. And then again, that's not Serena's fault specifically. It's, it's a little bit of a, the victim of circumstance, but when I look on ESPN.com even, right, it's like the, the headline that I saw was, you know, Serena, yada, 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 comma, Naomi Osaka wins first championship. And you're like, well, that feels a little, that felt a little off. And, and I, I, I want to get sort of the group's thoughts on this because, you know, Carrie the other day brought this up to me and I didn't think about it at first, but when I rewatched, you know, the post-game interview and the award ceremony, I thought there was a lot of merit to it. You know, Carrie was like, I think that, and don't, Carrie, don't let me put words in your mouth, so check me if I'm wrong here. But, you know, he was sort of mentioning that Naomi showed a very Japanese in that moment. And usually I kind of like take a step back from those things and I, and I don't want to assign that level of like cultural expression to someone in these like snapshot moments. But when I rewatched like the the award ceremony and rewatched the post-game conference, I mean, she is nodding her head. She's bowing her head when she's acknowledging people. She straight up apologized for winning because she knew that everyone wanted Serena to win because Serena is this big, great big star. And she like literally told the U.S. Open official, like, I'm going to defer to you, <laughs> right? She literally said, like, he's like, how do you feel about this situation? She's like, I'm going to defer to you. Like, that is the quintessential Japanese Yeah, deference. I think that was Tom Rinaldi that was asking her to yeah, and she's, and she's like, looked, I'm going to defer. Right, she's a Japanese-American who lives in Florida. Like, don't get me wrong, like, there's a lot of other elements here. And again, she's also black. But I, I thought it was really interesting because I think that, you know, like, not and this is not to put Serena and Naomi at odds with each other. I think they're very much on the same sides of this issue. But I do think that at the same time we look at like Serena and we say, don't label her an angry black woman because of the way she acted in this moment. We also have to give some latitudes and some credit and also better understand Naomi in this moment where it's like, hey, Naomi showed up like a deferential Japanese woman. Now that doesn't mean that she's meek. That doesn't mean that she's weak. That doesn't mean that she's demure. However, it's very clear to see in the way she dealt, I mean, even in the press conference when she's sort of saying like she's bowing, you know, every time she acknowledges someone and says, thank you, she bows. And it's like very obvious that like her Japanese culture and influence is, is showing through. Like we need to know how to like as a media community react to that. And, and just like, you know, several years ago with Jeremy Lin, like when people show up in a certain way that isn't that isn't consistent with like the cultural norms that we've known these athletes to, to, to like sort of perform at, like to express themselves. We need to also be like, Hey, like maybe we need to put the attention back onto Naomi because she's not going to hop on Twitter tomorrow and do it herself. Right. And I thought that was me- a great, a great tragedy in, in all of this is that like there was sort of in the way her culture showed up, you know, like there was sort of a washing over that I, I felt like was really unfortunate. I think you bring up several good points. I know, Mark, you're tight on time. You got bounce. So. Yeah, I got to roll. Um, <laughs> yeah, re- real quick. Um, Naomi played so well the whole tournament. I mean, she was unbelievable. Like, she deserves so much credit. I think Serena's persona is so big that no matter who she was playing, it was going to overshadow, like, what happened was what happened was so large and so important. It was going to overshadow whatever it was and whoever it is. Um, in my, like, my, the last thing I'll say is, like, is for me, it seems like, I think the best analogy is is Serena got a ticket for driving 70 miles an hour on the freeway. You know what I mean? 
Um, <laughs> speed limit 65, Serena's going 70. Is it against the rules? Yes. Do people get tickets for it? Not usually. Um, so that's what I think is uh, the closest thing I can say to it. But thank oh, you guys for having me. On. Yo, appreciate it, Mark. Next time we'll have you back. We'll do a thanks, that's Mark. so that's so Mexican yeah, thanks, as Mark. opposed to that's so Asian. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got my burrito so list ready Mexican. for you guys. <laughs> that's awesome. Tell Shelves we say what's up. I will. Thanks, guys. Talk to you later. <laughs> Bye. Bye. So tight on time, but this is like what Justin had brought up is literally the uh, conversation we were having about how Asian yeah. is this reaction from Naomi Osaka. And of course, we are doing these wide sweeping generalizations, but at the same time, like Japanese culture, and I'm not going to try to mansplain, but I know that Japanese culture is very um, emphatic on like humility and things like that. And that's it, it just when. She was doing all the bows and and just her demeanor. It, it screamed to me to be a very proto like stereotypical Asian reaction. And when I say stereotypical, I don't mean it in a negative fashion. I meant it as an actually, um, and I'll, I can get into later on, like how these Japanese Japan newspapers were like applauding her reaction. Um, oh still, wow! What, what's your what's your take? Yeah, I think the word that you used for it, we were kind of going back on back and forth on this after the match, I think the word that you used was courtesy, courtesy culture, right. To, to kind of yeah. describe, um, a little bit of the Japanese approach in that situation. And, and I remember reaching out to you and saying like, did you watch the ceremony? Because there seemed to be a really, um, strong Asian component to me when she was apologizing. I mean, she literally said, I'm sorry to the crowd after having won. And to be honest, deservedly won. You know, she was dominant. Um, and to me, it came off as that was something that I, that sort of um, I, I considered in that moment because I thought here she is apologizing for something that she has nothing to apologize for. And there's almost a shame in what she has done because she's beaten her idol and the crowd obviously wanted Serena to win and she didn't deliver. There was a little bit of wanting to please the crowd and not being able to. But since then, I've kind of reconsidered my my original opinion. And, and you know, I don't know Naomi Osaka, no, Naomi Osaka well enough to say like, yeah, she's acting this way because of her culture and how she was brought up. I think, though, that there is an aspect of immaturity um, in that moment. And by that, I mean, I don't mean that as a pejorative. I just mean that as that's her age, right? She's 17, 16, 17 years younger than Serena. Serena showed incredible maturity and poise in that moment. And I think that Naomi was just <sighs> feeling every single emotion. And she, she, she didn't have to apologize, but didn't know that she didn't need to apologize. She didn't have the experience and the um, maturity, I guess, under her belt to know that she didn't have to say I'm sorry to the crowd. She didn't know them anything at that point. So I actually think that it was less cultural and maybe more of an age thing. Ooh, interesting. But, yeah. I will say this, though, Michelle. I will say that, like, so I, I was raised by a Japanese woman. So, like, when my mom, I showed her this in prep for the interview. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, my mama's son <laughs> giving her a shout out here on the podcast. <laughs> nice. <laughs> What up, because, mama? <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I think was interesting, though, is is because that's the way that my mom sort of read it as like a Japanese woman herself. She did. But, oh, okay. But, but it's interesting, though, because the age thing actually plays a, a role in that because Naomi is 20. And in a room full of the crowd, the reporters, Tom Rinaldi and Serena, it, part of Japanese courtesy culture is she's younger and therefore should defer to them. And if you listen to the way, like, and this is where it's like, I don't want to get too deep into this because I don't want to sort of microanalyze everything she said. But I think it's really interesting that she said that when she steps on the court, she has to put on a different mentality. You know, she says like, that's my idol. I got to play against Serena. But when I step on the court, I'm like, I'm just playing anyone. I don't think of her as Serena. And I thought that was a really interesting thing mm -hmm. to come out of the, the post-game interview. Uh, and it's it's also an interesting thing because... 
you know, I'm also applying a little bit of an Asian American lens to a lot of this and thinking, well, you know, yes, you know, like there's some things I wish, you know, she would have learned earlier in her job, in her, in her sort of media training, you know, now you'd expect a 20 year old athlete to have some kind of reaction that Mm -hmm. was a little bit more composed. But then I think, you know, even though she's operating out of a Florida based camp, you know, she carries the Japanese flag. She was in Japanese, the Japanese Tennis Federation since she was very young. And her Japanese cultural learning is very fundamental. You know, it's like in a way where I, I, as we learn, as we learn more about her, as we get to know her better, I'm, I'm curious to know how much of that has shaped her so much in those formative years where now I think she might need to learn a little bit of the sort of American media training on like how to, right. how to be in those situations, how to hold her own, you know? But I mean, but the thing is, is like, I mean, do we need to have her go through any sort of American media training? I mean, I, I will say that out of all the players, I've completely fallen in love with this girl, even before the U S open um, over the last couple of years, she's really bursted onto the scene and she's, you know, what's, what I find really interesting about her, and, and this is no different than a lot of other tennis players, is that she, from a tennis player perspective, an athlete, she is so crazy mature and developed. I mean, it. most players, the moment they step foot on the court, they have already lost to any one of the Williams sisters, much less Serena, right? So for somebody to be able to just not only win one set, but to be able to pull this off in their first Grand Slam finals is unbelievable. I mean... And also to have to go through all that drama and withstand that, like I would have been completely thrown off and just lost my lost my composure in the second set when all the stuff went down with Carlo, Carlos Ramos. But she's so mature from an athlete perspective, but then emotionally she is so innocent. Um, but at the same time, as far as I've seen her, she's always carried that Japanese, Asian, uh, component with her, you know, every time she walks up to the net, she always does a little like quick bow, you know, and, um, she, she does that to every single opponent. And she's always been very, very quiet, very subdued, very humble, um, not very outspoken, but which is a complete contrast to how she carries herself and a complete contrast to her game, right? Cause her game is so dominant and aggressive and powerful. Um, but the other component, the other thing that I want to bring up, and I'd be interested to hear everyone's thoughts here, is, you know, there's the backdrop of potential or inadvertent racism and sexism, but there's also this cultural potential, cultural hypocrisy that's going on. So we see all, you know, the Jap- Japanese media and everybody completely embracing her. But my question is, is this a case of Andy Murray where when he wins, the British embrace him, when he loses, he's Scottish? And they're like, well, he's, he has absolutely nothing to do with us. And, you know, don't forget that she's half Japanese, but also half, half black. And her father is Haitian. Right. So, and in Japanese culture, one that prides itself on, um, kind of like a homogenous, uh, I I don't know what you want to call it, but like a homogenous perspective. Um, a lot of time they, there's this word called, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. And, and maybe you guys know, but hafu, which is basically like half, right? And a lot of biracial individuals over in Japan feel as though they are not only not accepted, but completely frowned upon or looked down upon. And and I'm just wondering if this is an instance where are they celebrating her because this is just like an opportunistic time. And then, you know, other times they would maybe not accept her. Prim, that's that's super valid. Um, <clears throat> uh, excuse me. I, I so I recently caught a cold. Give it to my pregnant wife. Just that's why I caught to keep clearing my that throat. Weak immune um, system, man. Um, you're, not doing, you're not doing your job as a hubby. <laughs> uh, Steeler, is, I know you're running out of time here. Um, yeah, I have bail. to scoot. I have to scoot, guys. Um, but this was a great conversation, and I can't wait to watch. Both Naomi and Serena next, whenever they play next. <laughs> Hopefully, I'll be soon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Appreciate you, Steeler. Send some right, Steel. Bye, guys. See ya. Looking at this, he had an article written by the Christian Science Monitor. With, they've been around for a while. I, I don't really read them regularly, but it's written by 
uh, Stephen Wade and Mari Yamaguchi, who I'm assuming is at least of Japanese heritage. And they discussed this, your point exactly, about her mixed race parentage in a, fam- in a quote, famously insular, insular country. Um, so that's what I was mentioning about all those, uh, the three major daily newspapers in Japan were all very private. So I think, I think a lot about mixed race culture, um, predominantly because that is what my family represents. And I think that it, I do hope, I really, really hope that Japan continues to embrace her the way they have. And I want to give them a lot of credit. Because I actually don't think that even here in the U.S., we, we always claim or embrace mixed-race people the way that we should. I'll give you a really, really good example. Dave Batista, who is now a very famous actor and is someone who has been in the, the headlines a lot recently with the Marvel franchise, you know, he is half Filipino. He has the Filipino flag tattooed onto his arm and i can tell you you know the asian american media culture here in la you know, we don't really hold them up to be this symbol of the community like we're not out there saying like wow like look at this asian american marvel superhero in fact many uh, many times the way we talk about marvel is we say why isn't there an asian american marvel superhero and the truth is we do actually have more than one they all just happen to be mixed and I think that that says a lot here, even here in the U.S. with a mixed race Asian person, that there isn't always a level of Asian people claiming them as there should be. And it's been something that's been on my mind a lot recently. You know, Bruno Mars is another great example. Won the Grammy for best album last year, and people didn't go out and say, "Whoa, like, you know, good for us! Like, first Asian American to win a Grammy." We weren't doing that, and and I think that um. You know, I think that I want to give credit to Japan's local culture, local media for doing that in this moment. And I, I totally acknowledge, though, the fear that if she fails, that they'll disown her. And I hope that in the time that she has this spotlight, she's going to ingratiate herself enough, you know, in, in sort of a harsh media culture globally to, like, be someone they continue to hold dear. You know, it's it's a huge win for mixed race people all over Japan where that culture is actually a very strong subculture because of, you know, unfortunately, sort of a negative reason, but but American occupation of Japan. You know, there are a lot of people who are USGIs who had kids um, with mm-hmm. local Japanese people, and, and they have a very strong American heritage, a very strong American pride. You know, my mom grew up on a U.S. naval base in Japan, case in point, and grew up drinking Coca-Cola and watching I Love Lucy. So she has a very strong Japanese heritage, but a very strong American sort of folks, the American attitude. And, you know, for me, I think that one of the things that I'd actually be curious to get you guys' thoughts on as a follow-up, the Prim especially as a, you know, a female tennis player, Asian American in this situation is like, there is sort of this weird moment for me where I'm looking at a lot of black media and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, like, a lot of black media is actually sort of calling for Naomi to be more outspoken. You know, they, mm-hmm. they actually want her to be more like Serena. And it's it's a difficult thing for her to navigate because it's one of those rare moments where you have, you know, that that sort of um, – for, for her to be more outspoken in that way may actually take away – from the way that these Japanese local media really adore the way that she's responded in this sort of Japanese 100%. traditional way. And it's like, how, you're caught in between, you know, like, how do you, you know, how do you really um, show up in those moments? How do you code switch is a word that I like to use a lot in those moments. I mean, I think, I mean, I think the progressive discussion about this is that why do any of us have to choose you know, why do I have to choose between my Thai heritage and traditions versus my American traditions as well? You know what I mean? And um, and I think that's a beautiful thing uh, about this. Oddly, I think that aesthetics, simple, pure aesthetics dictate 
how we perceive and accept somebody. So generally, just because Naomi looks very Asian, everybody just assumes like, okay, well, we know she's clearly very Japanese. And it's like, oh, okay. And then we find out that she has a Haitian father, as opposed to say Tiger Woods, where it's like, okay, we associate with him with being African-American. Oh, and we find out that his mother is actually Thai. You know what I mean? And, um, and I think these, how they are raised as a child ends up dictating who they might gravitate towards. Does that make sense? So, you know, yeah. like Naomi, oh, clearly, totally does. Naomi clearly has, her mom had a very, even though her father coached her, uh, her mother clearly has a strong presence in how she raised her, her daughter in terms of her demeanor, yeah. her humility, how quiet she is, how passive she is. Um, she carries the last name Osaka. That's all there is to it, right? Yeah, exactly. It all. <laughs> and I, and I understand what solid seal was saying in terms of maturity, but I think in this essence, uh, in, in this particular instance, I do think that it was her Asian background that dictated her behavior response. Um, I don't think it was uh, immature. She is uh, somewhat a little on on the immature side just because she is 20 years old. I mean, I was completely, she's way more mature than I was at 20. I can tell you that. But in terms of like how she was responding, I do think that that was her Asian culture speaking and, and coming to the forefront. Um, but I, I think I want to point out what I think is so cool is that the last two U.S. Opens have all featured minority women. Two of them are biracial. So last year we had Madison Keys and Slow Stevens. Madison is half black, half white. This year we had Serena Williams and Naomi. Naomi is half black, half Japanese. And I think that's really cool because that is, you know, I think it was Time Magazine that uh, they printed out a picture of what the next generation is going to look like. And it's just a a page filled with ethnically ambiguous kids. And I and I can relate to that because that's what our child is gonna be. You know, my husband is is white slash Jewish slash Catholic and I'm Thai. Um and and I don't think I don't think we should pressure our kids to have to choose. You know, my nieces yeah. are half Thai, half white and um I think that Sometimes it can get confusing, but I think we can find a, a good balance between the two. Yeah, and that is, and that's sort of the challenge here. Like I, I was debating, like I said, with this old professor of mine I had, and you know she is, you know, obviously a black academic. So her, so you know she is well, way more studied in this than I am, um, in a in sort of the most rigorous sense. But as as sort of like someone who is a filmmaker who works a lot with these specific specific cultural commentaries. This is one line that I thought was really interesting that Salamisha said that I, I kind of took issue with. She said, you know, basically in, in Serena acting the way she did, she gave her 20 year old vanquisher, Naomi Osaka, an even bigger victory, the right to be angry and black and a woman on and off the court. Her rage was for the countless women sounds by sexist discrimination, not as simply pleading for herself, end quote. And it's like, I agreed with the spirit of what Salamisha was saying, but mm-hmm. at the same time, I'm like, why are we projecting, you know, why, like, why are we projecting a blueprint for how Naomi needs to act? Mm-hmm. Especially since, like we just mentioned, maybe the sort of blueprint of like the liberated black woman who is also outspoken is not actually her blueprint. And now we're sort of setting expectation. Mm-hmm. A, a cultural critic who writes for the New York Times, who I respect, is sort of projecting this thing. And now if Naomi doesn't rise up to it, you know, because of our hot take culture, Twitter's going to slam her one day for not arguing with the line judge, you know, for not arguing with the empire. And and that's what I worry about is, is you know, hopefully... Not, none of us, including myself, right? Like none of us will have the answer and should project and hopefully she'll find that voice. And, and you're right. Like, I don't think that she needs to necessarily be more American in the situation insofar as the fact that there is going to be a media around her who will end up slicing and dicing her reactions to try to, make, to, try to derive some meaning from it. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, Jade, what do you think? Hey guys, I hate to I hate to hit and run. <laughs> I hate to hot take and run, but I, I actually have to go myself. <laughs>
Yeah, no, I was. We're 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 all we're all wrapping up here. I just wanted. Jade's been relatively quiet on this one, so I just Me was either. throwing him at like. Uh... <laughs> no, I don't want to. I don't want to um... give my opinion. <laughs>